Okay, saints, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Tonight we'll be starting right in verse 33. Let's bow our hearts. Fathers, we come to you. It is our desire to once again receive from your spirit an understanding that there is in us there is nothing righteous. Nothing that we can stand on. So we come to you, Lord, by your grace and your grace alone. We come to you through um, your blood, Jesus, because that's the only thing that can cleanse us. And as we've been going through these passages, oh boy, do we need cleansing. We ask that you would continue to renew our heart, continue to renew our mind, that you would continue to allow this word to instruct us where we are erring in our theology, where we're erring in really understanding um, how holy you are and the holiness you demand. And yet you've covered us by your blood, but you've washed us here. So continue to allow your word to wash us and cleanse us and, and renew our minds, renew our minds, transform our minds, Lord that it becomes more and more just um, we rest in your grace and we walk in your grace and we just need your spirit to guide us. Mm -hmm. And so, Father, just tonight give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. All the saints of God said, Amen. 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 All right, saints. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. We've been dealing with Jesus correcting the bad theology and we're, we're still in that same place because, you know, where it starts off, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so this is a correction now. Jesus is still trying to get them to get their whole mindset renewed back to, you know, when it comes to the righteousness that God demands, it has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we're seeing how just so often the, the areas in where the religious leaders would teach, and they would teach in a way that they could slide from a standard of God's holiness and try to make it into a different standard. Jesus is now correcting that. And where we are tonight is in this place of oaths. And so um, your Bibles may say oaths, it may say vows, it may say promises, but all, all of them are all the same. So let's start reading in verse 33 again. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now we've talked about how the whole understanding that we're basing these things on is from, you know, Matthew, where you just love God and you love your neighbor. And it doesn't change from here. Because in these areas of O's, what they were doing is this. They were saying one thing and swearing by something, but then it was, it was almost as if they were manipulating these words. You would swear by the temple and not the gold of the temple. You'd swear by the altar, but not the gift upon the altar. And so you'd swear by heaven, but not the throne in heaven. And they would use these semantics. So basically when they were swearing, it was almost like 
um, you had your fingers crossed behind your back. And it's like, well, I made this vow, but you didn't see this. I had my fingers crossed. Or I'm telling you and I'm showing you my fingers, but my feet are crossed. And it's like, well, I crossed something. And so you're looking for a way out. Now, we've been looking at these commandments. And where this one here is um, part of the commandment from um, Exodus 20, verse 7. I want to just read that to you. It's one of those of simply loving God. But he does make this statement. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. People were, you know, swearing to God and swearing to God. And he says, listen, you, you can't swear to me and then not do that. And understand, that's the culture that was there. Someone would swear by their deity. And of course, Israel then would swear by their God. And if you do make an oath, if you do make a vow, God expects you to keep it. But what Jesus is saying here in verse 33, again, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. In other words, don't, don't, you know, mess around. If you say something, do it. In other words, like verse 37 says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, have your... Um, where, where you and your character and your speech is so trustworthy that you don't have to say, let me add to what I'm saying by something that's external, by, in a sense, a technical restraint. I don't know if you've ever heard it said or maybe, you know, um, said it when you were a kid or maybe you've heard it where he said, I swear on the Bible or if it's really why I swear on a stack of Bibles, you know, because... All of a sudden, you want them to realize, I'm really, really telling the truth. But what God says is, if you have to do that, you've already been in error. If you can't just speak and have your words being trusted. And so, it's one of those things where Jesus comes and he says in verse 34, But I say to you, do not swear at all. And so, it's, it's going to be interesting that... He's basically saying that if you have to swear, if you have to make an oath, if you have to make that kind of a vow, um, that it shows a weakness on how people actually receive your speech, how people already see your character, where if you're one of those where I doubt it, I doubt it, I doubt it, and so, but you have to now add something external. I swear on a stack of Bible, um, or I pinky swear. You ever heard that one? I pinky swear. Or if you pinky swear it, now you really have to do it. Um, but those are the kind of things where um, people are going to either receive your words or they're not. Yes or no, very simply. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were using these O's as a way to speak something, but then being able to slide out of it. And because they were saying, well, I swear by the temple. And like, oh, well, you swear by the temple. He's ah, well, sorry. If I swear by the gold of the temple, I'd have to do it. But I only swear by the temple, so that's my technicality to getting up. And it showed a deception. It showed a lies. And so what happens is these vows and these oaths, what they do is they establish our promises or our words or our um, truthfulness on a technical restraint, on something that's external. I swear on the stack of Bibles. Not, not here's my heart, this is just who I am. But we have to do something external. And I want you to see here that when Jesus says, I swear to you, I say to you, do not swear at all in verse 34. 
There are some people who take this to say that I cannot, if I, you know, I'm called into court and I'm called a witness, where they say, put your hand on the Bible. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And they say, oh, whoa, 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 I, I can't swear at all because that's what the Bible tells me. Jesus says here in Matthew 5, verse 34, he says, I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven nor for it is God's throne. So he says, God says, don't swear, don't swear. Well, understand that what Jesus is trying to teach here is what we're going to call it is this. And I want you to understand there's a technicality. There is such a thing as a voluntary oath. And there's another thing called an involuntary oath. Let me explain the two so you have it. A voluntary oath is something that I say, that I do this like if I if I'm not telling the truth then I'll do this or you try to make something external and that's voluntary you you say something more than simply the yes or no in order to justify your behavior or have someone believe your behavior now an involuntary oath is something where um, like Amy Coney Barrett and you know hopefully in, in, a, in a month or so she's going to put her hand on the Bible and she's going to give what's known as an oath of office and you know she's a Christian and she's a Catholic and so she's going to well I can't give an oath but see this is a, a, an involuntary oath and an involuntary oath is different there are those oaths that are, are, are voluntary where you simply say this is what I want to do this is what I'm going to do and you give an oath but what happens is this if you have to give a mandatory oath, like she's going to do it, um, and, and an involuntary oath, what that is, it's a, actually it's a matter of, of laws. And if you swear to tell the truth, then you're just liable for perjury. That's what an involuntary oath is. It's, that's not what he's talking about here. An involuntary oath is, is something that um, you... Are, are stating under the penalty of perjury that what I'm about to declare is true, or you're stating an oath in office, and it's one of those things where this is what my office stands for, this is what I will do within this office. Um, when I joined the Marines, we had to do an oath, and you know, to protect God and country, and so you know, all from all enemies, foreign and domestic, that's what we do. With that, it's important to realize there's an involuntary oath and this is not what Jesus is speaking of and there's a voluntary oath so keep in mind that even though you have an involuntary oath where someone swears you know to court it doesn't guarantee there's going to be honesty but what it does do is this is that it, you have now the authority to hold someone accountable for the lies because they're now perjuring themselves so I do want to make that statement here because there is such a thing as a voluntary oath and there is such a thing as an involuntary oath. Now, when Jesus says in verse 34, I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool. If Jesus says, do not swear, remember now in the end of the book of Matthew, in chapter 26, I want to read to you verses 63 and verse 64, because here, I want to back into verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, 
I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. But this is, this is what? It's an involuntary oath. It's not a voluntary oath. It's an involuntary. So when Jesus says, don't make an involuntary oath, he's not saying that you cannot make that oath or, or you know, they're in a court of law if you become a witness. It doesn't state that. So keep in mind that there's a lot of people who take it to the extreme. And it's important. We've talked about it last week, not to go beyond what is written. If you take a look just at this passage, you would say, well, you should never swear any oaths. But when you take a look at what Jesus does later on in the book of Matthew, you see, oh, there's a difference in oaths. There are voluntary oaths, which is what he's talking about here. Don't make a voluntary oath to add credence and, and you know extra oath to your word as far as your honesty and integrity. But he says he's not talking about an involuntary oath. And so... What we're going to see is this. Through these things, the question now comes front and center. What is an oath? If you want to know, jot this down if you're a note taker. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 16. It simply declares this. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So what an oath was supposed to do is to take away any doubt that what you're sharing is the truth. When someone says, well, I swear on my grandmother's grave. Well, you swear on grandma's grave, it's got to be the truth. And so it's going to really end the dispute. Are you really telling the truth? And so um, when someone puts their hand in the Bible and they say, you know, they have that fear of God, it's that thing, are you really telling the truth? And that's what an oath does. An oath is to something greater, something greater than the person, something greater than his integrity. You're saying this is something that's external, this technical restraint by putting my hand in the Bible, it forces me now to tell the truth. And Jesus, if it just isn't in your heart to tell the truth, you're already in error. And so you have to come to that point of really seeing what is the truth. Let's speak forth the truth. I want to share with you another passage as far as what oaths are. A good definition. Found in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want, you can turn there. I'm going to read a few verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 6. It declares this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 1. Walk Prudently, when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they for they do not know that they do evil. This is when you go to the Lord and you begin to worship. And, and so as you do this, and you say that, that be careful when you draw near to hear rather than giving the sacrifice of fools. In other words, draw near to hear from God versus telling God what you think he needs to, to hear. And I think this is true not only when you come to worship, but it's also a true thing in prayer. Eventually what you learn as a Christian that when you begin to pray as a new Christian, it's just a monologue. God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And it's just this laundry list that you expect God to do. He's just your cosmic genie there in heaven, and this is what I need accomplished. But as you grow and you mature in your walk, you find out that prayer is actually listening. 
And so he makes this statement, Ecclesiastes 5.1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. He talks about here, don't be rash. You know, as we were saying, let my words be few. Um, I just want to be sincere and open with the, the, the most minimal of words. And so he says, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart under utter anything hastily before God. And this is what he's saying. Be careful of the things that you would say and how you would say it and what kind of vows you would say. He goes on in verse 2, For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? So here he goes on and says, when you come to the Lord, be careful. Don't, you don't have to say anything. And I love the fact that what God tries to show us is you really don't have to say anything. If you're familiar with that passage, we covered it when we went through the book of Genesis. But as we went through the book of Genesis, we were to that point where in Genesis chapter 15, it actually said that here, um, Genesis 15, verse 17, It came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying... So we see here that what was happening is, according to verse 12 of Genesis 15, that here um, Abraham is driving everything away. In verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold... Horror and great darkness had fell upon him. So God was the one who made the covenant. Um, Abraham was simply a recipient of the covenant. Talk about letting your words be few. He said nothing. If anything, he went Z, Z. Just, you know, he, he's gone. And I think this is so important that when you're coming before God, listen to what he has to say and be careful that you're not saying, well, I'll do this and I'll do this. As we've been finding out, um, you can't even say, I will not murder because your heart has already committed murder with angry and being angry and, you know, cutting down people's character and, and demeaning their intelligence. And you can't say, you know, that I've never lusted or, you know, all these things we're realizing just how much we fail. And I think it's important that when you realize I can't live up to a standard, here's the thing. Don't tell God I'll live up to a standard. Just simply say, with all that you give me through your grace, I want to love you. That's what I will do. What you pour into me, I just want to give back to you. And, and so you realize that, you know, in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I can't really promise God I'll do anything because eventually, no matter what we do, we're going to fail. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen how people, they, they, they can't jump over these bars. You know, you can lower the bar and then eventually you're going to knock down the bar and you can lower the bar. But eventually, if you do it often enough, you're going to, you know, one day slip and you're going to knock down the bar. I literally, sometimes I'm walking on a flat surface and my feet hit my feet and I'll still stumble and there's not even a bar. <laughs> Let's say, when you say, God, I'll do this, you're setting a bar. And realize that eventually you're going to fail that bar. And I think it's so important that when, when you're coming to the Lord and, and don't say, God, I want to do this for you. I want to do this for you. I want to just, just say, God, you know what? Whatever you pour into me, I want to give back to you as an act of worship. But I'm going to need your help with that because even that I can't do if it's not apart from you. I love what Paul said. He says, with all of the, the people within the church, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called apostle. He says, I am by I am by the grace of God. And he says, and I do more than they all. And then he makes a statement, yet not I, but the grace of God, which is in me. He realizes that anything that he's able to do, anything that he's able to accomplish is God's grace. And, and when it comes to vowing, when it comes to talking things before the Lord, don't say, God, I'm going to do this. God, I'm going to do this. It's so important. Um, rather than giving the sacrifice of fools, which is the words of my mouth, being rash with my mouth, and, and don't let your heart utter anything hastily before God. And we want to do that. It's like, like we're really going to impress God. How can we impress God? Even as a Christian, we realize, I can't impress you. There's nothing that I can do that God would say, wow, I've never seen that one before. You're God. And so you can't impress him. Don't try to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, because we know that eventually we're going to fail. Um, I don't know if you've ever made these vows, say, I'm going to, like New Year's um, resolutions. Most people, they end within a week. Some, if they're really good, they'll, they'll end you know within a month or two or six and so one year I made it a, a point that said I was going to be substandard and inadequate. That was going to be my resolution. I said, this is, this is what I want to be. And I'm hoping that I can do it. And I failed because somebody said, can you help me? I went, yeah, sure. I said, see, you're not inadequate. Like, oh, man, I even blew that one. So keep in mind that when it comes to these things, we can try to make vows. We can try to do things. But I'll tell you what, without God... Without God, it, it's, it's not going to work. If you say, I'm going to do devotions, one day you're going to wake up you know, sick or maybe with the COVID, who knows what happens nowadays, and you're not going to want to get up and read your Bible. Like, wow, I just failed. But it wasn't my heart to fail. It wasn't my intent. But just things happen. And so realize this. Don't be rash with your mouth, um, Ecclesiastes 5.2. Don't let your heart utter anything hastily for God. For God's in heaven and you're on earth. He's way up here and perfect. And you're way down here and imperfect. He is, is, is infinite in his wisdom and his power. And we are finite. And, and even if we want to do things, here's the problem. We have the sin nature. It's been inherited. And eventually the sin nature is going to rear its ugly head. Why? We realize that we, we have this battle between our spirit and our flesh. And sometimes what happens is this. If you don't have that battle, um, then you're only in the flesh. You can't just be in the spirit. But even when you're in the spirit, you still battle the flesh. And this is why he says, verse 4 in Ecclesiastes 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. If you're going to make a vow, 
and do it a one-time thing and then begin to walk it immediately. He says, because he takes no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. And he says, it's better not to vow than to vow and to not pay. Now, here's the crazy thing. Last week, we dealt with the whole area of divorce. And what is amazing is in the act of marriage, what they do is this. They're called the marriage vows. And so when, when you make a vow, and here's what it says, do not, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. You're standing before God and the company that is gathered to hear and witness your vows. And the vow that you make is, is yes to that person, but it's to God ultimately. And he says, pay what you vow. He says, it's better not to vow than to vow and to not pay. So what is he saying? Don't ever do a marriage vow? No. He says, that when you do a marriage vow, realize I need to do this. I need to take this to heart and I need to pay it continually. This is my ministry. And so in verse 6, he says, do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. For you say one thing and you're not able to do it. And or say before the messenger of God, oh, it was a mistake. And I didn't really mean what I said. No, you, you said it and you meant it. You just weren't able to do it. So keep in mind, it's the same way where the law is perfect, just, and good. The law has no problem. The only problem with the law was our inability to keep it or to walk it. That's the same thing with vows. The only problem with the vow is our inability to keep it or to walk it. So this is what oaths are. So if you, you, your note takers, Hebrews 6.16 and Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 6. Something that I want you to see is that God himself makes oaths. And, and this is where it's, it's key to understand that when God makes an oath, he recognizes one thing. <coughs> His oath is binding. God is not going to make an oath and then not do what he says. And so God knows, hey, when you make an oath, you, you are bound by that oath. When God made an oath, when God made a vow, when God swore by something, which was by himself, he held it where he must do that vow. And it wasn't where he could now get out of it or, or slide out of that vow. He needed to do what he declared. I want to take you to the book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 7. And I want to read to you just three verses, verses 7 through 9. It declares this, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for thousands of generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So here, he says, you have to understand that God has set his love upon you and he's going to do what he said. And, and what he's going to do is this. He's going to keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. When God made a promise to Abraham, 
that through Abraham's seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed and his seeds would, you know, his, his seed would bless the earth. This is what God promised now through Abraham. And he made them the oath to Abraham that he would watch over, he'd bless his descendants, and God is still keeping true to his oath. And understand that in the end times where God had promised to Abraham and his descendants, there's going to be another time where God is going to do a work in the nation of Israel. If you've been tuning in to our messages at, at Calvary on Wednesdays and Fridays, we're going through the book of Revelation, Daniel's 70th week. Once again, this is God's fulfilling his promise to the Jew. He's fulfilling literally his oath. And so we see here that God himself, he does make an oath. There's a portion of the gospel of Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 67. I'm going to read all the way down through 75, but I want you to focus with me on verse 73. So Luke 1, beginning in verse 67. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. So it's important to realize that God does make vows. God does make oaths. And I think it's important to realize that the oaths that God makes are binding. There's two O's that you should be aware of and that are hugely important for us as Christians, both found in the book of Hebrews. We quoted one of them earlier, but I want to take you into a greater context because I want to share with you Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20, where God gives the promises by an oath, and then in Hebrews 7, 17 through 22. But let's look at the first one, Hebrews 6. Um, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, so this is Hebrews 6, 13, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, I love this about God. God doesn't say, I swear by heaven, or he's like, I swear by me, because there's nothing greater than me. So he swore by himself, and this is what he said, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so we see this incredible promise from, you know, Genesis 22. And then he says in verse 15, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. That's what we read. 
Thus, verse 17, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. This is all now the descendants of Abraham. This is both his spiritual children, physical children. The immutability of his counsel, how his word does not change, confirmed it by an oath. In other words, if you make an oath, do it. That's all God says, and I've done it. And so we see here, verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we see that here, this, that God himself made an oath. And this oath was that we would have eternal life. And what he does is through this eternal life that we're going to have, the anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, is now the presence behind the veil. God has made an oath and what's going to happen is this, the glory that's behind the veil, that the high priest could not enter in with the exception of one time of year. And only on that one time after he made a sacrifice of a bull for himself, he could then put on the incense on a, on a, a pan with the coal, and he could then put it before him as he walked through that veil. And even then you have this cloud of the smoke of the incense, so he couldn't fully clearly see God, the mercy seat, and the, the Shekinah. But understand that, that here God is saying this presence behind the veil we're all going to have access to. This is the presence. This is the power. This is a covenant that God has made. And, and this is part of that promise where you and I can take it now to the bank. Now in Hebrews chapter 7 beginning in verse 17. I'm going to read it down to verse 22. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's this word that God gives that Jesus Christ is going to be a priest forever. The beautiful thing about the Melchizedekian priesthood is this. It preceded the Levitical priesthood. So the Levitical priesthood had a start after Melchizedek because Melchizedek was there in Genesis. And so, but after that in Exodus, God raised up the Levites. They would become a priesthood. They would have a high priest. They would have the sacrifices. But eventually the Levitical priesthood did what? It ended. And there was a reason it ended because the better sacrifice has now come. And the, the high priest of another priesthood, the Melchizedekian one, it had no beginning. It has no end. The Levitical one had a beginning. It had an end. And so we see here that God testifies in Hebrews 7, 17, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. There was an issue with the command. There was an issue with the law. For the law, verse 19, made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope 
through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch, verse 20, this is key, he was not made a priest without an oath. For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn. That's an oath. He made a vow. He, he swore this and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. This isn't the covenant of the law. This is now the covenant of grace. And it's so beautiful to realize that Jesus here, that, of course, the promise that Jesus would come, the promise that, that we could now have access to God was made by an oath. So this promise was made by an oath, and God says, well... I said it, I have to do it, I will not delay it, and I will do it forever and ever and ever. I will keep the vow. And then he says, but the way that you have this promise is through the person, the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one that gives you now the access through his death on the cross. Then the veil was rent from top to bottom. And so we see here that he was made a priest according to this order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priesthood, the one that preceded it, and the one that has no end. He was made a priest by an oath the Lord has sworn, which means it can never be taken away. And so this, Mel this Melchizedekian priesthood, where it says back in verse 17, remember, you are a priest forever. And he is our great high priest, and he doesn't have to be replaced like the other high priests because they, they would pass on so someone else would get there. Jesus, the perfect and the great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, becomes the high priest of this beautiful new order. Not the order that was under the law, but the order that is now under grace. And so he becomes this priest, the Lord's sworn he will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this beautiful you know, word that comes, that of course is from Psalm 110. And I want you to realize that these two things, that God himself is the one he swears. And of course that swearing, that oath, you can take it, and there's some scholars who will take it all the way back to um, Genesis 12, where he, of course, gave that promise to Abraham. I think it's more where you go into Genesis 15, where there he was in that, that, that burning where, you know, Abraham was asleep. God was the one who went through the animals. There was that fiery um, torch it went through. It was God who made a covenant. And Abraham was just simply a recipient of the covenant. It wasn't like God says, okay, Abraham... I'll vow, you vow. And he's like, no, we're not going to do that. This is why Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, said, it is finished. He didn't say, okay, I did my part, now you do yours. He said, listen, if he said, I did 99.9, .9, then he'd look at me and said, ah, oh, that's not going to work. He said, okay, I'll do 99.5. And he looks at me again and goes, ah, oh, that's not going to work. He said, listen, it's finished. <laughs> There's nothing you have to do. You can receive fully all that I have done. And this is the beautiful um, issue of what it is when it comes to this whole area of vows. 
Now, there is a warning that we do find in scriptures when it comes to vows. Of course, the, the one that's overarching is that one, of course, we read in Ecclesiastes 5. But there's another one found in the book of Numbers, chapter 30. I want to start reading to you just what God begins to say. He makes a statement in Numbers chapter 30, verse 1. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or he swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So like Ecclesiastes said, you know, don't, don't say, oh, it was a mistake, I did it in error. No, if you make a vow, this is what it says. If a man, verse 2 of number 30, makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. And this is what's so important. Don't say, God, I'm going to do this for you. God, I'm going to do this for you. God, because eventually what's going to happen is you're, you're going to have a bad day and you're not going to do it. It's always, God, by your grace, this is what I want to do. And if you, if you, and I'm going to be asking for your grace and looking for your grace and relying on your grace. And what happens is this, you get your eyes off of you and anything that you can accomplish and you're back on the Lord and the amazing grace that he's bestowed upon us, wretched sinners, that he wouldn't allow us to do anything for him. I would think you just cast me into the fire and be done with me. God says, no, I've set my love upon you, and I've done it with always. And, and how long, you know, standing that is. But he says, basically, if you're a man, do not break your word. You shall do according to all that proceeds out of your mouth. Now, he does make an exception, and this is unique. Verse 3, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears the vow of the agreement, on which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, and all of her vows shall stand, and every agreement um, with which she has bound herself shall stand, but the father overrules her on the day that he hears, and none of her vows or her agreements by which she has been bound herself shall stand, and the Lord shall release her because her father overruled her. Now, he'll go on to make a few exceptions. If a wife makes a vow and the husband hears it, no, 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 we're, 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 we're not doing that. No, she, she's not accountable to that. If he speaks up for his daughter or for his wife, and he says, no, that vow is not on the day that he hears it, then they don't have to do the vow. However, if he doesn't speak up and he, he remains silent, but he's heard it, now all of a sudden that vow has to be kept. So the only exception to having the vow was either a daughter or a wife if the husband heard it or the father heard it, they can, he can say, no, um, we're, we're not going to do that. He can release them from the vow. And so if he feels that vow was a rash vow, he can then undo that vow. The issue with the vows is this. And I want to share with you just for a moment. I want to kind of digress for just a second. Because when you do a vow um, in the same way as if... If you're saying, I'm going to make a vow to make this, this word that I'm saying extra powerful or extra trustworthy. 
Um, James 2.18 makes a statement. He says, you know, you're going to do your works and I'll do mine. You, know, you have faith, I have works, but, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. What he says, I'm going to do my faith by my works. And so when you do faith by works, when you do what you do and who you are by actually doing it, not saying it. There's some people, it's the words. You're going to show your faith by what you say. I'm going to show my faith by what I do. And that's the same thing when it comes to these areas of vows. Some people will say, I'm going to vow, but I have to add to it rather than just letting your character be that. And so here, when you do make a vow, you have to keep that vow. And I think it's so important that this is what, what God wants us to do. So when you look to these areas of vows and you look to see what it is that, that God is trying to, to do, there is an area where the law concerning the vows. One other passage I want to give you found in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, the key is going to be verse 20, but I'm going to start reading in verse 14, and I'm going to go all the way down to verse 20, 22. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. And it talks about how God just delights in you. Just realize this. You don't have to say, God, I, I'm going to do this for you. Just realize if you do nothing, he delights in you. Think about how much he loved you. You did nothing. You were an enemy of God and he died for you. And he says, I'm going to call you into my kingdom. But I love this because he says, the Lord, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 10, just delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now notice what he says in verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him, and you shall hold, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Now, what here, this is what's so important to read in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. It says, if you're going to vow, don't vow on a stack of Bibles, don't pinky swear, don't swear by the temple, don't swear by the gold of the temple. Don't swear by the altar. Don't swear by the gift of the altar. Don't swear by heaven or the throne in heaven. Swear by God. If you're going to do it, just do it right and make it powerful. And you swear by the greatest thing that there is. Keep in mind that when we're going to look at this in just a moment back in Matthew chapter 5. But when you're swearing by all these things, God is the one who's in all these things anyways. You don't swear by the, the temple. Oh, let's try the gold of the temple. Well, God sanctifies the temple. He sanctifies the gold of the temple. Well, let's swear by the altar. No, let's swear by the gift that is on the altar because it's greater. No, God is both there with the altar and the gift. It's all to God. 
And he makes a statement, if you're going to swear, and this is where it's so key, read again with me verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast. There's a precursor now. Just hold on to God and hold on to God and say, God, it's you, it's you, it's only you. And if you're going to take an oath, you take it in his name. Verse 21, he is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. So God first sends love upon you. Now, if you're going to respond to God and if you're going to need some kind of a boost for your word, he says this, make the boost me and me alone. You do it to me and only unto me. So you're not doing it unto people. You're not doing it to anything else. So we see here that you have those faithful vows of God, those that will never, ever end. And so then you have the, the, the factual basis of the, the vows, which we've already looked at. And now there's, there's I want to show you just a couple of things. I want to show you the first vow. I want to show you the foolish vows, and I want to show you what false vows are, because those are the things that Scripture brings into balance. The very first vow, that, or oath, that we actually see in Scripture, um, that has that term oath. And, of course, you see that passage we talked about in Genesis 15, where you see the act of the vow, and the New Testament says it is a promise, it is an oath. But the actual first term for the word oath is actually found in um, Genesis chapter 24. And it's a beautiful passage because this is the passage where um, the servant gets a bride for his son. And you see this is the first place the term oath is used. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 24. Abraham speaking to his servant but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I bring your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. He was probably thinking something like Laban where Jacob got stuck. And he says this, The Lord God of heaven who took me, verse 7, from my father's house and from the land of my family who spoke to me and swore to me saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and he shall take and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So here, this oath of Abraham's servant saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to find a bride. I will not take your son there, but I will go and I will get the bride and I will bring her back. And so we see this beautiful picture, of course, where Jesus now is in heaven and the Holy Spirit comes and gets the bride and brings the bride to the Son. We understand it to be the rapture. But I love it that the very first time the term oath is used in the scripture is here in the servant getting a bride for the Son. And what it is is this. It's an oath. And I love that because that promise of, of God to the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to bring the bride of the Son to the Son. 
And what a glorious promise that is, what a glorious oath that is. And that's the very first time the word vow is used, the word oath is used in Scripture. But we see here not only the faithful vows of God and, and the facts of the vows and what we saw here the first vow, but there are foolish vows. When it comes to the vows, I want to share with you a passage found in the book of James. In the book of James, I want to start reading in verse 11, and I want to read through verse 12. So James 5, 11 through 12. In James 5, verse 11, it says this, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Now, this is, this is a unique thing. Um, when, when you count them blessed who endure, keep in mind that um, the blessing comes through enduring, and enduring comes through what? Trials. And, and so we see this, indeed we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he be, before he speaks, let me read verse 11 and 12 again. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, brother, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with an oath or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. Now here, before Job talks about the oath and not to give an oath, there's something that precedes it. And what precedes verse 12, of course, is verse 11. And this is, blessed are you who endure. And he talks about here the perseverance of Job. He says, of course, you saw the end of what happened in Job. We know the beginning, the middle, and the end. That Job was there, happy, blessed. He was righteous. The enemy came in and began to just take away everything that was Job's, his, his family, his health. But, and then, you know, he brought to him friends of Job's. Why they call him friends, I don't know. But the, the, the friends of Job's who sat with him silently for a long time. And then he said, Job, listen, you just got to confess. You know that all this happens because you're just a horrible individual. Confess your sin. And he goes, listen, I'm righteous. I've done nothing to deserve this. And yet, at the very end of all that perseverance, as he endured, God then brought to Job and he blessed him again. Then all of the, the, the ten children that died, God blessed them with ten more children. And so we see here that God gave everything back to Job and then some. And then he gave him, of course, a place of honor um, above all of those people that were with him. But understand, when Job went through a trial, sometimes what we do is this. Have you ever gone through a trial and say, God, if you stop this, or God, if you ease up on this, then I'll do this. Isn't that amazing how through trials, that's what brings the vow. And this is here what James is trying to tell us about the vow. Don't tell God, God, if you do this, then I will do this. Don't be... Um, you know, like, like Jacob. Remember how Jacob says, God, if you, you know, do me, give me this, and you give me that, and give me all these things, and I will do this for you. It's important to really watch out where he says, listen, when you go through those in 
trials and you go through the areas of endurance and perseverance like Job did, remember what happened. Don't make a crazy vow to say, God, like, like Job, if you take away the boils, you know, then I'll do this. Job just said, listen, I'm wretched. What can I do? I, you know, there, there's nothing. I can't stand and say, well, God, I'm righteous before you. I know who I am before you. And, and I have nothing to offer. We'd be like Isaiah, where you might think you're something as you're ministering to God, you know, for the Lord, saying, woe are you and woe are you until you get before the presence of the Lord. Then it's, oh, woe is me, for I am undone. So in the presence of God, we realize that none of us can stand. But be careful when God, through his wisdom, is trying to mature us, that he takes us through a place where he's teaching us to endure and he's teaching us to be, you know, perseverance. And through that perseverance, character, and through the character, you know, this hope. And, and all these things that we, we know in the course of hope does not disappoint. But all these things that God is bringing us through, don't try to say to God, God, if you stop this, I'll do this. Don't barter with God. Allow him to take you through what he needs to take you through. Because God knows what he's trying to mature in us. And this is where after he talks about in, in verse 11 where James says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Don't try to get out of the, these trials. You have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, which is greater glory than Job initially had, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Don't ask God, take this away, take this away, take this away. Like Paul, three times he prayed, Lord, you can't take this you know, the, this thorn from my flesh. And God said, what? My grace is sufficient for you. Don't forget that when you're going through this, don't ever think that the Lord is not compassionate and merciful. He will only allow you to go through only what you need to, to build you up. And there are some times that God has to strip certain things away in order to build new things on. But he's not going to just simply tear it all down. And so the, 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 the things that are on the rock, the things that are good, he's going to say those things will withstand. But and then he's trying to move everything onto the rock right? because he knows the wind is coming. He knows the waves are coming. He knows that the, the world is sinful. And he says that I want you to be able to stand. I don't want the things that you're building to fall down. So come and build them on the rock. Dedicate them to me. Stand on me. Rely on me. Don't try to build things outside. But when you, when you realize I'm going through it, you're blessed when you endure and, and you go through the perseverance. And remember, God is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brethren, when you realize this, he says this, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath. Don't say, God, if you do this, I'll do this. Don't do that. He's just simply saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't try to... Thank God, I will do this for you if you do this for me. So as we take a look at that, um, it's just that reality. I actually want to, you know, I'm going to take and I want to read you that passage from um, Genesis chapter 28. Because in Genesis chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 20 through 22. It, it simply declares this. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. 
that here, Jacob says, I'm going to make this vow to you, but you, if you hold up your end, I'll hold up my end. Think about this. How crazy of a statement is that? God, if you hold up your end, I'll hold up mine. God is able to hold up his end and our end. We're not even able to hold up our end. So be careful of these vows that you make, these rash statements that you make, especially when it comes to trials. Say, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. I'll, you know, and, and I don't know how many people have, have vowed those kinds of vows. And these are the things, these voluntary vows that you make that are rash and quick. And, and if you're going to vow, you vow it to the Lord. But we see here, you know, these areas of, it's a foolish vow. It's a vow when you say, God, I'll do this. If you take away this trial, I'll do this. That's a foolish vow. Another foolish vow, and of course, you guys already probably knew I was going to go there. In Judges chapter 11, uh, a, kind of a bizarre and crazy vow that was made by the name of Jephthah. And it, it's found here in um, Judges chapter 11. The whole passage is starting in verse 29, goes all the way down to verse 40. But I want to just simply begin to read this to you. Judges chapter 11, beginning in 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced towards the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be. Now notice this, verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you will deliver, so if you do this, if, if you do this, then I will do this. If you indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, verse 31, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, surely shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And so keep in mind that, and I want to share with you that there are, are some translations that has this as this, then I will, it will surely be the Lord's or I will offer up as a burnt offering. So he says either what comes out of my house will be the Lord's or I will offer it up um, as, a, as, as a burnt offering. So there are some who say, you know, it will surely be the Lord's and I will, but the, the conjunction can also mean or I will. So the reason I state that is this, because we're going to find out that in verse 32, Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. Verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with the timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. And he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So this word that he's given was either um, whatever comes out of my house shall be the Lord's, or I will offer up a burnt offering, or 
Whatever comes out of my house shall surely be Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So this would mean that either he would have to offer his daughter to the Lord or a burnt offering, or he would have to offer his daughter as a burnt offering, which is where a lot of people begin to struggle through this passage. Now, verse 36, so she said to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies of the people of Ammon. And then she said to her fathers, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months and I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So she says, okay, now that you've made this vow, do me a favor, let me go and, and bewail my virginity for two months. Notice she didn't say, let me bewail my life. <laughs> so we see here that it's probably more likely that he said, I'm, I want to, you know, my daughter's going to be the Lord in the same way that, um, Samuel was offered by his parents to the Lord and he became the, the, the prophet. We see the same thing here where Jephthah comes and he's going to offer his daughter to the Lord or this burnt offering. And she says, well, I'm not going to go to be well my life, but as I'm given over to the Lord, I can never be married. So verse 38, he said, go and he sent her away. For two months and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity in the mountains and so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her which he had vowed she knew no man now understand if she died of course she knew no man <laughs> you know she was a burnt offering but if she was offered to the lord the same thing came true she knew no man. She, and the better term is she remained a virgin. That's a, a good term. And, and it became a custom of Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. So we see here a very foolish vow. Whatever comes out, if you do this and I'll do that. The same thing that James is trying to warn us through. Now, here's the weird thing. Lest you think... And this is where, you know, good men of God are on both sides of the issue with Jephthah. Did he, you know, offer her as a burnt offering? Did he not? Um, I'm on the leaning towards the not scale, but I won't divide over it. Because there's a passage that kind of makes me pause and think for just a second. Um, and, and that passage is found in Matthew chapter 14. Let me read it to you. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. And I'm going to read all the way down to verse 12. Matthew 14, verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him into prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Verse 5, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of, Herod's, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath. Note verse 7. He promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was very sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother's. And of course, therefore, his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So we do see that here, Herod kept his oath. Now, foolish of an oath it was, 
crazy as an oath it was, but he now puts John to death. And it's not like a father to a daughter, but understand that those who think she could have, he could have actually done that, they will use that as a passage, and I can't deny that that passage is in there. So with all these men of God, they've been arguing for centuries. We're not going to answer it tonight, nor do I want to answer it tonight. So we'll just let it give you the, the fullness of that context of that foolish vow that was there found in, in Judges chapter 11. But we saw the first vow. We saw the foolish vows. And, and now comes the big one, the, the false vows. And this is here where Jesus is trying to say. Let's look again in our text for just a second before we move on. Back in Matthew 5.33, again you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, he's saying, if you're going to make a vow, you make a vow to me. If you're saying it to man, you're still making it to me. And if you make a vow to me, you do it in my name, and you're doing it to me and only for me. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne. Don't say, I swear by heaven. Why? Because God is the one who is there. It's his throne. Don't swear by the earth, for it's his footstool. In other words, anything that you swear, God's in charge of it. So if God's in charge of it, why are you swearing by something lesser? Because God's already in charge of it. That means that you're basically swearing to God no matter what you say. I swear by the temple. Well, it's God's. I swear by the altar. It's God's. No matter what you swear, it's God's. You swear by your own head. Guess what? It's God's. And so realize that whatever you swear to, it's God's anyways. And this is why he said, but I say to you, don't swear at all. Do not swear at all. In other words, do not try to say, I have to add this external component to my words so that my truthfulness is elevated. Don't, don't take that. Um, and he says this, But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. No, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. You have no control over your head, unless you use Grecian formula, then maybe you can, but, but you can't do that. You, you can't by your own vows. Your vows and what you want can is, 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 you're able to complete your vows as simply as this, making your hair gray or black. You can't do it. It's going to happen naturally. You have no authority. But of course, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, I want to take you to this period of, of false vows found in um, Matthew chapter 23. Now within Matthew chapter 23, when we get there, we're going to realize that there are eight woes that Jesus gives. In the same way that he gives eight blessings, there are going to be eight woes. And the fourth of the woes is found in verse 16. And Jesus makes this statement. I'm going to read from verses 16 through 22 here in Matthew 23. Woe to you, blind guides, who says, whoever swears by the temple... It's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. So if this Pharisee came and says, oh, I swear by the temple. You know, oh, wow, if you're swearing by the temple, then I can understand it. He goes, oh, I don't have to do it because if I swear by the gold of the temple, then I really have to. So really they're using these semantics to say, if I can convince you 
by you having falsely believed my, my honesty, but if I say the right thing, I only swear by the temple, I don't have to be honest. And Jesus said, what are you thinking you don't have to be honest? If I cross my fingers, I don't have to be honest. One of the things that was, you know, I learned as a parent and learned even more as a grandparent is I want my grandchildren to trust me. My yes is yes and my no is no. And I won't say, okay, I won't tickle you and then I tickle you. I will never do that. I want them to know that what my word is is what it is. I don't want them to think, wow, he might be tricking me. He might be deceiving me. No, I will really tell you what I'm going to do. If I want to tickle you, oh, I just feel like tickling you. And they're like, oh, okay, and I, I'm going to tickle you. Okay, and then they're running around. They want me to tickle them. No, no, please don't. Well, then I won't. You're asking me not to. But I will truly let my yes be yes and my no be no. I don't want any deceptiveness. And this is what they were doing. If they said, I swore by the temple, and this is what they said, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, now he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? He said the temple is actually greater. And of course, God is the one who sanctifies everything. But whoever swears by the altar, verse 18, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. So you see what they're saying is semantics. If they can get you to believe something that you can slide on, and then you're going to have this false control over them where you can literally lie and not do the thing that you said because you've spoken in semantics. In other words, it's like saying something and having your fingers crossed. And if you do that, like, well, my fingers were crossed. Well, you know, he says, don't do that. Don't do the semantics. Just do what you say you're going to do. And then in verse 19, he says, fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So in other words, when you swear, when you make an oath, when you say something, you're literally saying it to God. And I think it's so important that we realize that everything that we say... We're going to be held accountable for those words. Every idle word that we speak, we will be held accountable for. And especially when you speak of things that are deception, where you know you're not going to do it, but you do it anyways. And that's really a great percentage of the vows that people make to God early on in their Christian walk or when they're not a Christian. God, if you do this, then I'll, I'll give my heart to you. And he does not like, oh, well, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. I, I'll, you know, if you do this, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you, you know, three hours a day. Yeah, it doesn't happen. But that's the thing that people do. So when we come to this area of seeing these things of vows, Jesus says in back in our text in Matthew 5, 37, let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. If you try to barter with God, then what you're trying to do is this. God, I'm on an even par with you. That my words to you are the same as your words to me. They're, they're level. And that's what the enemy did. He tried to exalt himself above God. 
And if you're thinking, I'm going to be the one who determines the rules of this engagement with you, Lord. You're going to not do this, and then I'll do this. Who are we to go above God and to say that my words are the things that, that can manufacture and to make this covenant? Realize, when I try to do that, I'll never be able to do the vow. So I've not only leveled myself like the enemy above God by saying, I'm going to set the rules of engagement. I won't be able to hold my end of the deal. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to fail. And what happens is this. He says, just don't vow. Just don't vow. There's this beautiful passage I want to close with this found in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. And it says this, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you how you ought to answer each one. Be careful to say, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But honestly, say this, if the Lord wills, it's my heart, and it's my desire, but, but pray and we'll see what God does. And it's so hard to be able to commit to things other than when God, you know, will call you to do something, and then he'll anoint you to do something, and through his calling is his enabling and then he's going to continue to allow that ministry of his spirit through you to bless others. And this is the key. Let your speech always be with grace. Always be, to say it has to be the grace of God. And it's in his grace that this is my heart to do it. But realize that there are going to be times where it's going to be on my heart. I'm just not going to be able to do it. I love how God said this. You did well that it was in your heart, he said to David. Yeah, you botched it, you blew it, but you did well that it was in your heart. You can't build the temple, but I'm glad that it was in your heart. Because why? You can't ever fulfill the vows. Be careful how you say those things. And so let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you, how you ought to answer each one. And I think when it comes to this, there's such a beautiful way of, of just really saying this, yes or no. Let your character be that, that when you say yes, that, that they realize he said yes, it's a yes. And when you say no, you really mean no. Um, there have been a lot of times where God has called us to follow him. And I don't know why he does what he does, but there have been times where God has told us to open our, our home. We had seven small kids and God said, open your home to a, a husband and a wife there are three kids and she's pregnant with her fourth. Open your home, bring them in and, and minister to them. And so we did. We opened our home and said, here it is. You know, it's as much yours as me. And, and so as long as it takes. And so God called us to do so. And then there was one single woman and she had one small baby. And we prayed and God just never gave us the peace. And, and so we couldn't bring her in. And we had to say, I, I can't. God has said, well, why, why? I don't know why. I just know that I don't have the peace. And, and I don't know. And because if you were come, if you would come with us, we'd be the second best. At least that third best, fourth best. We, we aren't the best for you. I know God has a plan. I know you're disappointed that it's not us right now. But don't worry. God has a plan. He has a perfect place. And, and you know what? He did. Hmm. He did. And if we would have brought it in, we would have been out of God's will. And, and so but we don't always know the whys. But I do know I trust God. 
And, and so, but if he does say yes, then, then do what he's called you to do. If, if, if he says no, then, then don't do it. But let your yes simply be yes. Let your no be no. In other words, let your life, the life that you live, be the integrity of what you do. So when you say something, people are like, are you sure? Are you joshing me? It's like, no, this is, this is true. This, this, this is true. And so um, it's important to let that be um, your life. So you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. And all that means is this. Don't ever say you're going to do something because there's going to come a point where you're going to fail. We, and we are going to fail in all kinds of things, and we will never be perfect. Only God and our fathers. So, so you've heard it said, do not swear falsely, but perform the oath. So what does it mean? Don't ever oath to God. Just, just, just don't. Um, and, and just realize that I'm just going to love you. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to have all these fancy words. I just want to love you, Lord. That's my heart because you've already set your love upon me. And I just want to respond to that love in whichever way that you direct me, whatever way that you call me. So um, that's the teaching on oaths. May it be something that, that we as Christians um, let our words be few. And just say, Jesus, 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 I am so in love with you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your heart and your grace. You are so good. You are so faithful. We do ask, Lord, that as we've been studying this, that we, um, Father, if we have made these vows, um, forgive us, Lord. And we know that, that you are so faithful and just to forgive. But we do ask, Lord, that you would help us put a guard on our mouths, that we would not try to make vows to you um, when to try to get out of trials and try to make these foolish vows. But, Lord, when we do vow and what we have vowed, and especially following that, that study on divorce, Lord, what we have vowed, the vows of marriage, we want to be faithful, faithful, Lord, in your spirit, and, and in your power to walk these things and, and to walk them faithfully. We, we bind ourselves to that vow of marriage in the same way, Jesus, as you bound yourself to the act of the high priest, that you would give yourself as a sacrifice, that you would give us access to the very throne room of God. Thank you for your faithfulness. And then teach us, Lord, um, through your spirit and through the power of your spirit, what it is to be faithful and how we can be faithful in just the little things. That let it always be, Lord, this is a response of my heart to your love. Let me respond in gratitude, Lord, to within all my ability that you give to me, help me to respond to worship you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.